Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with Leroy Moore and Keith Jones. They are the co-founders of Crip Hop Nation, an international network of disabled artists founded in 2007. Additionally, Leroy is an author and current PhD student at UCLA, and Keith is the president and CEO of Soul Touchin' Experiences. They both are also working with many different organizations, and you can find more information in the description of this episode. In their conversation with Judy, Leroy and Keith discuss the past, present, and future of Crip Hop Nation. They also share their personal journeys as artists and activists. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. I know that you're going to enjoy this interview with Leroy Moore and Keith Jones, because for me, what I've really enjoyed about meeting them more and talking more in depth is who they are, the contributions they make and continue to make, and how their work is not just strengthening the disability rights movement, but I think really is critical in helping to enable all movements uh, that are dealing with underrepresented populations, allowing people to understand uh, the depth of our history and are putting names and faces together of people that I think most of us never heard of. So that's really one of the reasons why uh, we wanted to share them with you. I'm sure many of you do know of their work, and I'm also sure many of you do not know their work. And so one of my expectations at the end of this program is that you will uh, strive to learn more about their work because their work is so diverse and poetic and musical, lyrical, historical, everything you could say. So Leroy, you're next. Hello, Leroy Moore here. Thank you so much to you for having us. Thank you, Keith. Hello, my name is Keith Jones. I'm also the co-founder of Crip Hop Nation along with Leroy Moore Jr. and Rob Denoy's Temple Maid, rest in peace. So I'm interested in knowing where each of you grew up. You wanna go first, Leroy? Yeah, well, I was born in the coldest place on earth and not the North Pole, it's Buffalo, New York. <laughs> I swear to God, that place was cold, that place had snow all, all year round. But because of global warming, the place is warm in the winter, which is kind of weird. But anyway, I, I was born in Buffalo, New York. I grew up in um, New York City in Connecticut, um, Hartford, Connecticut, and Manhattan, New York, before it was gentrified. So. I saw hip hop on the corners in the 70s. Yeah, so that's, that's where I grew up. And you, Keith? I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and then moved to upstate New York. In Ithaca, New York, so I know about the god awful cold coming down through Cayuga County, uh, and then moved on to Boston, Massachusetts, where I started cutting my political activism teeth. And it was interesting growing up in the state from the Missouri Compromise and then moving to the state where people think liberty was born or where the revolution, you know, the shot heard around the world with Paul Revere. So I have a very unique juxtaposition on American history and race relations as it pertains to that. 
So when did your interest in music and poetry begin as individuals? Okay, so music began, I, I tell this story a lot. I was downstairs in my father's basement back in Connecticut. My father had a huge, huge record collection. This was before CDs and before MP3s and before computers. Can you believe it? <laughs> so, so I saw all these musicians and I was picking each one of them out and I saw all these blind blue musicians and blue musicians that had disabilities. I was like, oh, that's me, you know? So that's, that's where I discovered my music. Um, but, you know, I started in hard rock. I was a hard rocker. I loved, you know, um, ACDC and Ozzy Osbourne. I had a mohawk. I mean, I was punked out. So I started with hard rock. Then hip hop came on the scene with the studio thing. I was like, what is this? You know, so about the time I found hip hop, um, hard, hard rock was becoming soft. This new wave. I was like, what the hell is this new wave? So, you know, because I was a hard rocker. So when, when hard rock became soft, I was like, oh, let, let me go into this hip hop. And because I was from New York City, I saw hip hop on the corner. A quick story of that, um, the, the youth at the time said, okay, okay, Leroy, you'll be the eyes for the police because the police won't mess with somebody that has a disability. So, and then they said, of course you can't come in the cypher, you can't rap, you have a disability. So, so through those times I saw hip hop on the corner of New York, Brooklyn, Bronx, you know, some of them had into that, I was really Brooklyn in the Bronx. And that's, and yeah, and you know, that, that's when I fell in love with hip hop. And Keith? Music has been around forever, as far as I can remember, in my, my home, sitting at my grandmother's piano with her writing my first gospel song, I think it was like seven. Um, moved to upstate New York, and that's where found hip hop actually was a Sugar Hill record. I was like, what is that? And then my step-grandmother lived in Brooklyn, and we went down to Brooklyn, Thanksgiving, 77, 78, and I hung out the window and I was like, what is that? And this is in the age where you can actually have school supplies and they would give you like composition books. So I had an actual composition book and I wrote my rap name, which was F-E-Z-O in 1978 on the 18th floor of Bed-Stuy Projects. And so I've had that name since then. And so music and poetry and lyrics have always been part of it. Um, funny that Leroy, they say that would be the lookout. It's, it's sort of kind of the way it's always been. And so the love of just being creative has always been there. So I fell in love with, what's, what's the song? I fell in love with her right before I hit puberty. <laughs> well, you know, I was born in Philadelphia, but I don't really claim it that much because I only lived there three months, but I grew up for 25 years in Brooklyn. So every time I hear Brooklyn being mentioned, I'm so excited. Um, when did the two of you meet each other? <laughs> I love this story. Can I tell this story, Keith? I love this story because, okay, we went online on, on MySpace, back in MySpace because 
Facebook was in around, Twitter was around, it was only my, MySpace. So we made it MySpace, you know, I was, I was just starting Crip Hop and I, I saw Keith, Keith like first, first song on MySpace. So I was like, oh my God, this man is dope, you know? So, so it's like, okay, we gotta, we gotta get together. And come to learn that he's, you know, an activist and all that. I was like, wow, okay. Well, we met face to face at the DNC in Boston. Yes, at the DNC in Boston. And met face to face. I was a, a, a delegate. I don't know how I got into a delegate. Because I was like, are, are you sure you want me as a delegate? Are you sure? <laughs> It's like, yeah, we get delicate. So, so I, I, I got into the spaces and places that nobody could get into back then. Keith, we met at this fish shop, right? We met at Legal Seafood right down the street from the, at the time it was called the TD Garden. It was 2004. And we went in, and I'm not sure they really understood what was happening when we showed up. It was sort of like a stealth attack. And we had talked, you know, we had chatted back and forth on um, with whatever that was. And we called each other. We had spoke about meeting. And then we met and we started laughing because we looked at each other and was like, are you sure they're going to let us in? Are you sure? Actually, I think what, what precipitated the sealing of the bond, as we shall say, is us being at, at the uh, disability caucus room. And we sat there for 1,700 hours and nobody showed up. Uh, and when we left, that's when we ran into Ben Affleck sitting outside. Where's that picture? So we actually have the picture of me and Ben. Yeah, I got the picture. I got the picture. Of sitting there talking to Ben Affleck about disability policy and how specifically I had went to John Kerry two weeks earlier and said, if you if you pull together disabled veterans, the senior community, and the disability community, you can swing the election 15 points in your way. And then they looked at me and Leroy was like, oh, hell no, y'all too radical. Get out. And so we were excommunicated um, from the Democratic Convention. But it was not my fault. It was Leroy's fault. I just work here. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I got home after that. And I was kicked out of the California Disability Democratic Club. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like many of the stories in our lives, we look back on them and we are laughing about them from a historical perspective. But do you feel things have changed? You don't have to speak specifically about the DNC, but in politics that uh, disabled individuals and disabled people of color are getting more acknowledgement and recognition in the bigger sphere of work? Oh, I'll answer this first. I will center myself as there may be children around. So blank, no. Essentially what, you know, what we ran into in 2004, regardless of whatever your political affiliation is. Um, I worked on campaigns, Leroy's worked on campaigns, we've done community organizing. And this goes to the disability rights movement specifically, is that people don't want to hear the real story. And so there are no faces. I went to Nickel in 1998 and did a workshop on multiculturalism and disability. And people was like, <clears throat> What? I'm like, wait a minute, you didn't know Negroes is disabled too? You ain't know, like you didn't know First Nation people have disabilities. And it was amazing how the movement 
that says it's predicated upon the civil rights movement has little to no actual representation that looks like the civil rights movement. And so one of the things that was a little disheartening, at least in the beginning when I started in the movement, was we are all pushing for the same thing. But the other realization was that disability does not necessarily preclude you from sexism, xenophobia, or racism. And so in terms to your question, have, the, have people of color BIPOC, which is the new sexy word, um, been included? No. There's less willingness to discuss about the actual intersection of what we need, you know, especially in the, in the age. They just pulled that young man out of his car who was paralyzed. So that being said, we've had no outrage from Black Lives Matter, none of the old usual suspects. But I think for us in our work and the way we do it is that we understand it. We do it from a cultural and political lens, but with the goal of solving the problem, not perpetuating it in order for it to be a career. Leroy? Yeah, and uh, I, you know, I, I did what, what Keith was saying, but I, I also want to say is that the, the, the presidential election was, 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 was clearly a point that I was like, are you serious? When, when, when Joe Biden said that they were going to fully enforce IDEA, I was like, well, you just woke up? It's like IDEA has been on the book since the late 70s. What? It's like, and that, and, and that was his promise. And it, of course, he hasn't done it yet. I was like, I was like, why? You just woke up that that that, that should have been enforced back in the back in the seventies and eighties. So that that tells you right there that yes, yes, we have laws on the books, and yes, we enjoy those laws on the books. But politicians don't enforce and implement those laws. Yeah. So I, I see, you know, being black and disabled, there's. There's so much that that needs to be done, but it needs to be done in in the black community. So it needs it needs to have a national campaign, a national awareness, national education. And what 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 what's so sad about this? I see this happening in other countries. You know, I see. So I have in South Africa where they had a big push on educating. Africans are just like, you know, I see it in Brazil. It's like, why can't America have a, a national campaign for Black and people of color with disabilities? Because to tell you the truth, that, that um, educational campaign, when, when we had the Rehab Act and the IDEA and now the ADA, that, that kind of education never happened in the black and brown community. Yeah. So we so we have to have the education from a black perspective. So we have to go back to slavery and you know and and we have to re-educate the people because well, I, I came up with the term black ableism. And because of black ableism, Black disabled people can't go back home. It's so sad to see. You know, we got black national organizations. None of them has a disability component. The NWACP, the Urban League, 
Key Jones did a protest against Urban League, you know, way back when, and it's still the same thing. So, yeah, I can go on and on about that. Well, I just want to say a little bit that I think things are a little bit different because voices like yours are much more prominent. And we can look to a much broader, diverse community, including by types of disabilities, like people with autism and intellectual disabilities and psychosocial disabilities, et cetera. And, you know, three of us are not the same age, but we're close enough. You know, one of my questions, too, is did either of you go to regular included classrooms or were either of you in segregated disability classes? Oh, the joy of it all. It's, you know, and you're right, Judy, it, it, it has changed. Um, and again, coming from Missouri to, to the East Coast, I was the first kid in upstate New York with being, quote, mainstreamed. But they did it, and that was 1976, 77, in Ithaca, New York. And you went to Northeastern for half a day, and then they would send you to BOCES. For the rest of the day. Both things. Yes, because you would get your physical therapy, your occupational therapy. But going back to St. Louis for a year, I was in a completely segregated school. Because in St. Louis, you there were only two schools you could go to. It was one in the city and one out in the county. And so what what I've seen with the laws is things like that. And like Leroy said, like you said, things were slightly different and a little better. But the resistance is not from the community. The resistance is really from people who don't want to see our fullness of our humanity. It's, you know, it's, I don't want Keith or Leroy or Judy in the classroom because I don't know how to teach Leroy, Keith or Judy versus this is my job to impart information upon a human who just happens to have this version of humanity when they show up. And I think now what's a little disheartening is that we've, we've gotten to the stage where the discussion is not even about Judy, what what do you need to support your quality of life? Leroy, what do you need to support your quality of life? Because we've done the work. You know, we've unionized home health care aids, PCAs. We've made sure that we try to fight for inclusive, affordable housing. But in the end, the mission that we all have been trying to is just to be able to wake up, just to be, just be. Like, you know, wake up, be able to pursue your dreams and challenges without walking out your door and having somebody literally sit at the desk and say, Psst, if those two people with social security like each other and they want to get married, uh-uh, don't let that happen. Like, you know, the, the societal stigma of our disabilities, whether they be visible or non-visible, whether they be DID or autism or dyslexia or cerebral palsy or whatever, it really gets to the point where you have to question what kind of leadership do we really have if they can bifurcate the community solely along the diagnosis as opposed to what do we need to to enhance everybody's quality of life. Leroy, where did you go to school when you were growing up? Oh, yeah, school. So my mom had to sue the school board to get me out of those segregated schools. I went to school in Connecticut, started in Connecticut. But yeah, my mom had to to sue the school board to get me out of those um, useless class and quote unquote mainstream. Yeah, and I was in, I didn't go to school till I was nine. And then I was in segregated classes. Now that was in the late 1950s. 
and 60s. Um, so I think we've all had different renditions. I think one of the important things about what both of you have discussed and you, Leroy, right now, you know, talking about your mother and the role your mother played in getting you into or out of these segregated environments. And I presume Keith, your family also yes. played a very strong role. And I think it gets back to a point that you were raising earlier about the need for people across the country to really understand and learn. Um, and I think these stories are so important because people are still having similar problems regardless of the fact that the laws make these placements pretty much illegal. Right. But let's move on to what is Crip Hop Nation? Your story about how you met is great. How did this evolve? And has Crip Hop Nation turned into what you were hoping it to be? Leroy. Yeah. So after we got kicked out of the DMC, me and Keith went, went to the studio, music studio in Boston. And um, I, I had the idea of Trip Hop Nation in my head. And we, we talked it over in the studio. And Keith was like, yeah, let's do this. And, um, you know, from there, it just blew up. But it really, it really started on, you know, on the radio station, KPFA. And I was a part of this um, disability radio show called Pussy Limits. And I convinced the radio show to do a three-part series on hip-hop and disability, which they did. And um, after the three-part series, I came back home. I got so much emails from around the world. You know, I got emails, I got calls. Um, I put out a call on MySpace. I got so much back that I was like, okay, let's do this. You know, let's have it, you know, a real thing, not only a radio show. So that's that's when I wrote down the mission statement and got in contact with Keith, got in contact with our ancestor now, but Rob Denoy's Temple. He was the elder of us and he 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 lived in Brooklyn. So, yeah, once again, so, you know, all three of us and other people, you know, said, oh, yeah, let's do this. So, yeah, and, and you know, we all three wanted to have Crip Hop as an advocacy tool. We didn't, we didn't want a label. We didn't want a, you know, a charity kind of thing. We wanted it as, as an advocate and education tool. So. I think I think it's really going good now. You know, we put in like 20 years of hard work doing things on SSI dollars budget, you know, having events on SSI dollar budget, um, you know, traveling the world with what was our own money. You know, we're not a nonprofit. We didn't want to go down a nonprofit way. You know, things are finally coming back to us because we made the foundation. Keith. Yes. You know, it's funny. I think, you know, it turned into what it was supposed to be because literally the conversation we were having was it was an intersectionality of our humanity. It was our blackness. It was our disability. It was our artistic. It was our political, our social economic. Um, and looking back, it's funny because right before we got on Facebook popped up a memory. It said, you and Leroy have been friends for 12 years on Facebook. And the picture that they had was Leroy and I 
doing that show in at Harvard University. Uh, uh, and it was basically like in the basement underneath the shoehorn. No, freaking Harvard. But in terms of what it has grown into, the, the irony is that we, we started this because music industries were not looking at disabilities. Entertainment industries were not looking at us. If you were, there were only certain acceptable disabilities, quote unquote, in terms of getting into entertainment or politics. If you were paralyzed, it was like, oh God, you know, we'll let you run because you're a spinal cord injured and we love you white man. Or, you know, or if you looked a certain kind of way, but it was never for indigenous, black or brown or LGBTQ plus, it was never for anybody who was outside of what was being appropriate. But we always kept our head down and kept pushing because as much as it was about putting out poetry, it really was about the mission. And the mission is to give other, other persons with disabilities, black, brown, indigenous, whatever, a place where their creativity and their voices were heard. Not that that term, we're, we're centering your voices. It's not that. We, what we did was here's the stage say what you need to say because we are 20% of the global population, right? We are the world. We are your brothers. We are your sisters. We are your husbands and your wives. And so in the context of, has it turned into what we hoped? Actually, it's almost grown up by control, but it is exactly what, um, you know, I, I'm proud about what we've done. Looking back on it, yeah. Are you working with like teenagers or younger? Uh, disabled kids. Yeah, yeah, we are. You know, um, you know, um, I, I was I was just on the call earlier this morning. I nominated um, a thirteen-year-old for this award, and um, see when when she was ten years old, she wrote the forward for my comic book Crip Hop. You know, so a ten-year-old wrote the forward to my comic book. So yeah, we're. You know, we're dealing with youth, not, not only in the U.S., but uh, internationally, because Crip Hop is international. You know, um, Keith Jones just did um, this um, event with Kung, Kung, Kung. Calcutta, India, and Melbourne, Australia. So don't, not, not to step on your answer, but the answer is yes. You know, the irony is, is we are, this is all about giving back. You know, you don't blaze the trail for yourself. You blaze it for others to follow so that they don't have to do the work you're taking the slings and arrows for. Well, they'll get different slings and arrows. They'll get different slings and arrows, but at least they'll have the GPS and know when to duck. Uh, <laughs> so we, you know, we absolutely work with youth. But, you know, there's no age limit. You know, it's funny. We, you know, Leroy gets mentioned a lot. People have reached out to us and said, I didn't know my son could do such and such until I saw Crip Hop. I didn't know my daughter could do such and such until I saw Crip Hop, or I saw Leroy in the book, or I saw Keith in the documentary, or we saw Germany, or we saw France, we saw South Africa, Brazil. Um, so it really is about making sure that you embrace your humanity, regardless of how you show up. And we let you rock, because you don't. You know, one of the issues in disability and other areas, but now we're focusing on disability, is there such a shame factor in having a disability? And we mentioned this a little earlier and the stigma. And I think the stigma can be, you know, quite intense. And in some way, you know, when we're performing in the arts or whatever it is that we're doing, 
we are not only in many cases doing it for ourselves, but we're really looking at being able to make sure that we are excelling, that nobody is going to say we are inferior to what other people are doing. When of course, not everybody can excel in everything. So I still think, you know, one of the essential aspects of who you are and the work that you're doing, and you're doing so much different work, is really, you know, you are a real role model for many people. You've talked about the international work that you've been doing. Maybe you could give us a little flavor of how you got involved with that and uh, what you're learning as well as what you're sharing. And we'll go with you, Leroy. Yes, thank you so much. Because Queer Pop blew up internationally first. Yeah, you know, we, we had to come back home and, you know, try to blow up here. But Queer Pop, when I put on my space, Binky Wu from Germany, um, applied, Ronnie Ronnie from Uganda applied, you know, um, our, our African chapters are just amazing. They're just kicking butt. And then they're kicking butt once again, like quit out with no money, you know. So so the international quit pop um reach is so important because you know disability is an international thing. You know, music is an international thing, advocacy is an international thing. When when I travel to the UK, South Africa, Toronto, and me, you know, I just say, brothers and sisters, I realized that we had the same history, of course, you know, different culture, different language, but we had the same history of struggle, we had the same history of fighting for our rights, we had the same history of the arts and music, you know, I, you know, um, one, one, one incident, I'll leave you with this, is when, um, Queer Pop got involved with a single father in Uganda, and he was he had two two disabled daughters, and he was looking for um, help to get wheelchairs for the disabled daughters. The disabled daughters were pushed in a wheelbarrow, in a wheelbarrow. Okay, so so uh, you know, I, I I gave him an assignment. I was like, you know. Write, write this article. He, he, he was a, a journalist, so he wrote the article, came back, we did a campaign to get two wheelchairs to Uganda. And we did that as Quip Hop and our supporters. We did the Facebook, MySpace, you know, people donated. We got two wheelchairs to Uganda. And, and, and the daughter's like, I love Crip Hop. Crip Hop needs to come to Uganda. I need to go to school, Crip Hop. I want to go to school to be an activist like Leroy, like Keith. So we went back on the wagon for two years and raised funds for the daughters to go to school for two years. So that, you know, that's, that's, that's the international pull of Crip Hop. It's not only music, it's you know, advocacy, it's, you know, education, it's civil rights, it's human rights, you know, although, you know, we got the UN Declaration of Disability, you know, you, you talk to people in, in other countries and it's like, well, that declaration is not enforced. So it's good that the president signed it, but we, we're, 
you feel like in the services and the music and the arts and stuff. Most of the music that you've created both together and individually tackles social and political issues, including police brutality, eugenics, institutionalization, and more. Uh, why do you believe music is so impactful as a platform for activism? Music, I mean, music, it's, 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 it's the theme of the world. I mean, people can express so much in a song that, that, you, that you can't express on the protest line. You know, I mean, I, I go back to Marvin Gaye of what's going on. That that song, that song, that song is still relevant today. Like, what you did that in the in the seventies? Yeah. I mean, people are still um, taking that song apart and applying it today. So that's that that, that that's what music does. You know, music you know, talks about the struggles, talks about uh, the beauty, you know, talks about what's happening today. And you can, you know, go back to it and just like, God, has things changed or has things changed the same? And, you know, you can dance and have fun at the same time, but also you can listen to those lyrics and, you know, you can be in love, you can um, hate the system, you know, you can, you can, you can do so much with, with, with a song. It's just so powerful. Yeah, it's um, music is the soundtrack of life, right? Like when you're sitting home, you put on your song, it transports you to when you were sitting on your grandmama's deck or you were at the barbecue or you were at your sweet sixteen, whatever life event. You know, poetry is unique, reading a book is unique, but music uniquely is... Um, gifted for that because it's portable, it stays in your head, you'll hum it while you're doing your dishes. And I think for us, it was it was a twofold thing. It was one, it's it's the history of protest. Like the entire 60s or the hippies movement is people, you say Woodstock, people instantly understand the kind of music. You instantly understand Sly and the Family Stone. You instantly understand James Brown. You talk about the Black Power Movement. You instantly talk about Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud. We, we just celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. And I was laughing at somebody who was like, I was I was standing on my grand my granddaddy's steps singing Happy Birthday written by Stevie Wonder before, you know, before the, the, the day became a holiday. So music is really, really powerful because it does connect beyond language, beyond geographical regions. It is it is the is it's the language of the soul. So we really try to use that one as a connective tissue as an educational tool, but also an uplifting moment to, you can listen to a song that's really powerful and depressing, but still walk away with some sort of hope that even in that song, people found a better life. So that's really why I think for us, the music is essential. And we've done some hardcore songs and we've done some really, really like goofy, cheesy songs. But it is the panacea of the human experience, which is why we love to do it in music. And I want, I want to add too, also, you know, deaf people love music. You know, Wawa is is performing at the Super Bowl. You know, he started what's called dip hop. That's deaf hip hop. So you know, people only think it's like, oh, music is for 
only people that can hear uh, deaf people has their own style of music, you know, so yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. I think that's very important because you're completely, you know, correctly, Roy, that people just assume certain groups of people will or won't benefit or enjoy music. And certainly, you know, one of the people that had been dubbed an ambassador in Finland uh, was a deaf musician, and he was being supported and traveling all over the world. So we're doing this program in February, which is Black History Month. And Leroy, you recently released a poem, song video for Black History Month called Honoring. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the project? Yeah, a little bit more. I mean, well, it is a video uh, honoring Black disabled performers from dancing to music. And me, um, Gabby, that, that, that produced the video, put it all together, and his mother that had paintings in the video. So, so yeah, so, so the video is Iron Black Disabled and Deaf performers, you know, from slave sits to blues all the way up to hip hop and more. So that's, that's on YouTube now, but it's gonna come down soon because we are starting called the channel. And so it's gonna be streaming on the channel soon. What I really liked was all the new information. For me, looking at the work that you're doing is it's very informative. And quite frankly, I don't think our movement has really, broadly speaking, in any grouping of people, uh, really looked um, over the decades at disabled individuals. But I just was powerfully impacted by watching this. And I just really wanted to say that. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad the work is doing what we 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 hope they did, and I'm glad you're learning. And thank you for for the compliment. Um, you're currently setting up Crip Pop Institute in LA. Um, who is working on it? And what is its function? Gee, take it away. So Crip Pop Institute is a vision um, seeded by I officially call Leroy Moses, but it's really a a a place where people can come learn their art, they can learn technology, an international center where there will be performance spaces, rehearsal spaces, recording, multimedia rooms where international chapters can come use technology to communicate around the world. Uh, it will really be a hub for the last 20 years of what Crip Hop has done, a library, uh, as well as a technological um, incubator for emerging technology. A lot, of, a lot of our people are in places where Technology, if done right, human-centered, would improve their quality of life and give them a, a way out of whatever oppressive situation they're in. So hopefully we will have it up and running in three years and we get, we get to see money sooner. I would love Apple and the rest of them to come on and say, we'll be your tech partner, we'll be your, your access partner, we'll be your broadband partner, because we have it all written up. So we're, we're grinding right now. Um, we're meeting some more local leaders. We really wanted to be rooted in giving people the ability to use all of their skill sets and talents and make sure that they have the accommodations in order to do so. And this is, this is going to go out before the Olympics and the Paralympics come to LA. Yeah. So we're going out before that 
so we can take advantage of all the disabled athletes that are going to come to LA so they can stop at the Institute and, you know, and learn more. Also, you have won the Sports Emmy Award for Outstanding Music Direction. Yes. Um, maybe, Leroy, you could start with how did this come about? <laughs> this came about on the producers of the, of the movie reached out to me, the Crip Hop, and they said that they wanted to work with hip hop artists with disabilities. So I, I gave them a list of people, Keith Jones, Tony Hickman, George Tragic, and, 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 and that's how I have it. But Keith can tell you more. Yes, this literally is skipping over all the fun stuff. Like he emailed me 48 hours before the song needed to be done and said, hey, do you want to be on it? And I'm glad I, I get the song. And it's, the song was amazing. I was like, man, you don't need me on it. No, 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 you got to be on it. So literally within 48 hours, we recorded um, what we did, my ADA story for the ADA 30 lead on celebration and the verse to Rising Phoenix, which then was mastered at Abbey Road Studio, which is, you know, the Beatles made famous. And so that led to um, people saying, oh, my God, this amazing song got attached to the Paralympics. It really has become an international anthem. And, you know, and we got an email saying, hey, we're going to submit you for an Emmy. I like nobody gonna pay me no Emmy. Then they said, and the winner of the music direction is the rising thing is I lost my mind. I still ain't got no hair. I said, what? 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 And it went crazy. And I still go by and look at this. I I I think I've only touched it like 12 times. I still walk by and poke at it because I can't believe it. But what it does say for all of those people is that if you stick to your integrity, you stick to your vision, you you do it in a in a helpful and loving manner, you know, sometimes it pays off. Integrity and vision, I think, beautiful words. And uh, Leroy, you know, you've written several books, including Black Disabled Art History 101 and Black Disabled Ancestors, and you're getting your PhD at UCA, UCLA. Amazing. Uh, what's next for you? Retirement. That's it. I'm done. Retirement. How old are you now? 54. Okay, so I'm 20 years older than you. You got a long way. Oh, God, don't say that. Okay. You got a long way. <laughs> well, guys, I really, truly want to thank you so very much for uh, the privilege and opportunity to have this discussion. Thank you for all the leadership that you are providing. And as I said earlier, it's amazing leadership because it's something that everybody can learn from, not just about disability, not just about disability and race. But for me, the historical look at what you've been doing, Leroy, has been great, allowing people, regular teachers and regular schools who are teaching Black history to be able to know Black disabled people um, from slavery and before and after. They don't need to do any research. They just need to go and look at what you've done and the work that two of you have done and pluck these people up and introduce them into the classrooms um, at primary, secondary, and now at universities. Yes. So thank you very much. And I'm so happy that we all have strong alliances with Brooklyn. Yes. Brooklyn. <laughs> That's what makes us who we are. Thank you both very, very much. Thank you, Judy. Thank you for having us, Judy. 
Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. I really enjoyed the interview with Keith and Leroy. Their personalities, their playfulness with each other. Yeah. Yet the seriousness of the subjects that they are looking at are great. Yeah, you can tell they are really good friends on top of all the work that they've done together too. For so long. Right. So for today's Ask Judy question, I have a question from Liza Bragan on Instagram. And they asked, what advice would you have for where to begin in the journey of advocacy work? So I think just by asking the question, you're already on the road to advocacy work. uh, Because you wouldn't have asked the question if you weren't already doing some advocacy work. Now, I think advocacy, you know, there are lots of books that you can study and organizations you can look at, but on a more simplistic level, I think for me, I began my advocacy when I was young and began to speak up about things that I wanted. It might've been just something for me personally, learning how to be an advocate for myself, as well as if you look at uh, Crip Camp and look at my book, Being Human, and obviously many, many other people's books, what you see is that for those of us who had our disabilities when we were younger, we were gradually getting our grounding. And for me, one of the important aspects of advocacy was believing that what I felt was a problem, discrimination, was resolvable, even if not in the very near future. And that working with other people allowed me and us to be formulating ideas about what we needed to do to make changes. And typically, you know, we didn't have the authority to make the changes we wanted. So we needed to be able to look at how could we influence those people who had responsibility for making changes. And that could be anything from, you know, your local Brownie troop, Girl Scout troop, uh, public school, religious organization, neighborhood association, your next door neighbor. And then it could get much more formalized, getting uh, curb cuts on streets, getting buildings with having standards developed being able to meet with legislators, city council, county boards, state legislators, getting involved in local campaigns, political campaigns, working to ensure that the voices of disabled people or whomever and the views that people wish to express were those that people who had responsible positions uh, could learn about and either already agreed and were working on the issues as you wanted or needed to learn more about why it was important. And there's just so much out there. But the bottom line is you are an advocate. Your advocacy skills will be honed and strengthened as you move forward, but you're on the road. That's great advice. And I hope too that this podcast, hearing people's advocacy stories like Keith and Leroy, you know, also helps people show where they can be advocates and how other people's journey started as well. Thank you for the question. Yes. Thank you, Liza. And if you're listening and you would like to ask Judy a question for a future Ask Judy segment, please send it to media at judithhuman.com or via Instagram and Twitter on Judy's accounts. That history won't forget us or Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. 
If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.